The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm Tito Ambio coming to you from RMIT University, which is on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri people in the city of Melbourne, Australia. As you know, as a Talking Indonesia listener, Indonesia has amazing researchers and scientists who are doing amazing research projects, whether big national or global ones or small and local research projects. However, like many other academics and scholars in other countries, many of these researchers find it difficult to communicate the story and the results of their projects to the public. Even when the result of their research project is a very important one for people to know about. Now, this is where an organization called The Conversation comes in. Especially for this episode, we'll be talking about The Conversation Indonesia. It is a media organization with an aim to help researchers communicate their research projects to the public. And our guest today is Prodita Kusuma Sabarini, Indonesian journalist and writer, who is now the CEO and publisher of The Conversation Indonesia. And she can tell us what The Conversation Indonesia is. It's non-profit online media, and we bring ideas, analysis, research from academics to the general public, and in in language that's easy to understand. Basically, that's it. Because you know that there's so many important and also interesting research and new ideas that is being produced in the knowledge sector and universities and research institutions but they're produced by academics and shared in a language that's quite hard for the lay people to be able to understand and get the benefit of these research. And so we partner journalists, experienced journalists, editors with academics and helping academics to translate their research and their ideas into short articles that everybody can understand. Let's talk a little bit about your involvement in it. You've been a journalist for a long time and you've traveled overseas as well as a journalist. And how did you become involved or how did you become interested and then involved with the conversation? So I started as a journalist at the Jakarta Post. That was a long time ago. I was in Australia actually studying for my master's degree at UNSW when the conversation in Australia launched. I remember it was 2011, so I was familiar about the conversation from the start of its existence in in Australia in 2011. So I was, I really liked the way that it was presenting research and producing to regular people, but also other media organizations, experts, because Like in Indonesia as well, sometimes we have this, for journalists, we have this difficulty of identifying the right experts to to interview or to seek 
more information about a topic. So sometimes in, in Indonesia, I remember when I was a reporter and we would have this go-to expert in sociology. We would go to that person again and again. And for example, the conversation introduces the people to these experts and they really know the experts that have information about certain areas and relevant to the topic that they want to explore. So it, it also provides a diversity of voices for the public to know about various topics that is being covered in the science sector. So I like that. And then in 2000, I think it was 2000, no, 2014, I remember there was an opening for a position for a Jakarta editor for the conversation. I was just finishing up a fellowship, a journalism fellowship, and I was thinking about what I want to do after the fellowship. And so it was a good opportunity for me to try out this this opening. And then I joined, yeah. I joined the conversation in June 2014. At that time, I was the Jakarta editor for the conversation office in Australia, but also covering, so I was covering Indonesian affairs from Jakarta for the conversation in Australia, but also my commission commissioning work was also being published in other editions because the conversation is a network. So there's a, an edition in Australia, there's an edition in the US and the UK, the articles of Indonesian academics that I commissioned was published in the conversation in Australia and other editions as well at that time. Why was the conversation interested in Indonesia? I think there's this understanding that there's a need for more knowledge about the relationship between Australia and Indonesia and to bring in perspectives from Indonesian experts about this relationship, about this the Australia-Indonesia relationship. That was one reason. And also at the time in 2014, Indonesia was just about to go into an election and it was a new era in Indonesian democracy. So there's one reason. The other reason is that the co-founder of The Conversation, who is previously the editor of The Age, and he was also the editor of media in the, U- the UK, Andrew Jaspin, he also had close connection with Indonesia. So his father was an academic who did research in Indonesia, in Bandung and also in Yogyakarta. And Andrew grew up as a little boy in Indonesia. So he had that connection. So there is this emotional connection from Andrew Jasmine as well. And the, the third part is that there's Indonesia as a society is very much emerging. It's an emerging economy. There's so many higher education institutions. There's a lot of, there has been a growing number of academics in Indonesia, and there is a need for just good quality information from academics to be shared with the public. Those are the three reasons why Indonesia. And I just want to add as well that conversation model is, I think, is important in almost all areas in the world because all societies need this high quality information from their experts so it's so it was just clear why the why indonesia needs this i think other countries also need this kind of model to for the public as well yeah and i think 
I have been a journalist for a while reporting about, about Indonesia quite often and now I'm doing a PhD about Indonesia but I still often feel it's quite hard to find often to find what research is happening in Indonesia and not only that I think in the global stage there is this feeling among many Indonesians right that whenever something has happened globally for example what's happening now with twitter people talk about about the what's happening in the arab world people are talking about what's happening in mexico but it seems that people don't really talk globally about what's happening in indonesian twitter which i think is um, a very interesting part of twitter what do you think is the biggest challenge or the biggest challenges for indonesian researchers and academics to communicate the research that they're doing both to Indonesia but also to the global world? That's a really good question and I can see the challenge in, is has multiple layers for Indonesian experts and Indonesian academics. The first is of course language because we're our mother tongue is Indonesian and the, the global franca is in is English. So there's this first there's this language barrier. The second but that's we can that's something that is solvable. There's translations and we can translate the thoughts of Indonesian experts to English and then share that. Like that's actually one of the things that what we do in the conversation Indonesia, we translate articles from Indonesian academics to English, especially articles that have a global relevance. And we think that there would be an appetite and interest for a global audience to understand or read about these issues. But also when we think that a global audience can learn something from the ideas and analysis and research from Indonesian academics, then we translate that into English as well. So that's one challenge and one solution that we're trying to bridge. The second part is that, and if you, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this phenomenon, but the generally in 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 a global global information ecosystem, the there are some voices that attracts more attention and some voices that don't attract attention. There's this more pull from, for example, academics from Western countries, usually, or so, for example, academics from Western countries or media organizations that are located in Western countries. They have somehow a stronger pull to attract attention from a global audience. If if an academic in America or an academic in the UK or Europe shares their thoughts and ideas, then more people would listen and would be attracted to these ideas and discuss them in a global fora compared to when, say, academics from the global south share something either in in their local media or in a more like an international media publication. And another thing is that sometimes even access to these more powerful global media organizations from academics from the global north and the global south, there's that gap as well of access. So there's that went on as well. And I think we're trying to change that. I think it's also we need to have a change of mindset because sometimes it's 
also the bias that voices or perspectives from Western academics are stronger or more powerful than voices or academics from the global South. That's one observation that I think, and I think that's like something that academics in Indonesia are facing, but not only Indonesia, but academics in the global South as well. Yeah, and I think that's a very interesting and important point what you said about the bias. To be honest, I also have this bias, right? When I'm looking up information about what's happening in Indonesia, um, if I have to choose between a research that was published by a researcher from Harvard or University of Melbourne or published in a small journal in, in Ambon, for example, I would still play it safe and go, oh, I want to go with the information that's published in English and published by people with this reputation. And... But you have to be aware of that bias in yourself. And I'm trying to be better, but how do you change that bias? Because I think the infrastructure, the world of academia have, as you said, prioritized all these big Western organizations and institutions. And yeah, I just really can't see how, how we can change that bias. What, I, what do you think needs to happen? I think from the user of, of knowledge, be it researchers or journalists or editors or policymakers, just having an understanding of the potential of bias is a start, I think, because then it makes you stop and think, okay, because institutions like Harvard and University of Melbourne, they have their, they have a really good reputation because they have consistently produced high quality high quality research mm. so it's it's it gives the users of knowledge like okay i can trust comes out from these institutions and i think like you, you, you shouldn't stop yourself from looking at research coming out from these big institutions but also try to look at other places so i think it's also the same where this went towards finding diverse voices, not just from male experts, but also from female experts. Even in the US, there's also that bias towards Ivy League universities compared to other smaller universities. So I think it's just understanding that you're, are you looking at all the possible sources of knowledge and information? And it does, it does takes more work, but I think it's worth it because it, it, it would enrich the conversation and the dialogue. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. When what you were talking about before as a journalist, often you go to the same people, right? And this is, and nothing against this people, academics who know the world of media, academics who are friendly to journalists, but that often ends up with us hearing the same people again and again. Is the conversation in Indonesia doing the same? What are you doing to yeah, deliberately diversify and maybe even decolonize knowledge about Indonesia with the conversation? First of all, we're, I'm a bit, when I heard decolonize, I was like, oh, I don't know, I was, I agree about decolonization, but I also don't want to make it as if we are against knowledge from places or or from groups of people that have historically more power or privilege because it we have to look at knowledge information research by its merit 
So that's just want to put that as a caveat. But again, like this is just what we're doing is to make sure that underrepresented are voices that are usually unknown. And not because of the quality of, of their work is low, but just because it lacks access to platforms. So that's what we're trying to do. So, for example, of course, in, in, with the conversation in Indonesia, we are commissioning articles from Indonesian academics. And we, it doesn't mean that we don't commission articles from experts from outside of Indonesia who are studying Indonesian studies or Indonesian politics, but we also, because we're here, we are closer to the community of higher education in Indonesia. We have more access to learn more and have more connections and what's the word? Yeah, we're, we, know, we know the Indonesian scholars here in Indonesia closer. Mm. And so we can, we can get to know their work more deeply and then commission their work and bring them out to on our platform and we also try very hard to look into universities not just in java so for example in sumatra in sea in eastern indonesia like in lombok and ambon and papua as well Mm. and make sure that we bring out research and voices from academics from that area as well. Can you tell us the processes that you go through to choose who who gets to write and who and how you edit, how you choose yeah, which stories to publish? Can you tell us about, about that a little bit for us, please? Our contributors are academics. All of our writers are lecturers or academics from universities or researchers from research institutions and every week our newsroom has editorial planning we look at the important issues of the day and we identify which areas to pursue and then we would identify the academics that we would like to commission so after that editorial planning our editors would go and they would contact researchers invite them to write for us we also accept pitches from academics themselves there's a pitch form on our website and academics can pitch their story ideas to our editors and once we once our editors see whether it's it fits with the editorial planning or whether it would be interesting for our audience to understand more, then we would process the pitch with the authors. The editors would talk with the authors before the authors write a draft. And so there's this discussion about the main idea or main angle and how to structure the article. And that actually also helps the academics as well because a lot of the academics, they, they probably are artists or health researchers or they, they're more fluent in writing for an academic journal rather than a popular article. So this initial briefing really helps in making sure that they're supported in shaping the draft. And from then, the, once the author finished the draft, then the editor would review it, would probably ask more questions to provide context for readers or to help eliminate jargons. And once 
all of that is done, then we publish the article after the author reviews all of it and they agree on the final piece. Often the way academics and scientists communicate is quite different to the way journalists communicate. Has there been challenges in doing that with the conversation? I usually I think it would happen with new contributors for the conversation. And I think it's just adjustment from academics to this more popular kind of writing. And I think that it's more due to having not having the experience yet to write for a popular audience. So this it's a learning process for academics wanting to write for a popular audience. But once they've gone through the process, and usually that initial process would take more time because the editor would need to explain more to the author about why we think that the main, main angle should be this way, why we think that there should be one main idea for a single article, because academics usually in their research, they would find maybe three or five interesting findings and they probably want to write, include all of that in, in the article. They probably also want to include different theories in that article as well to make sure that this is really rigorous. And so there's a lot of things that probably for the general audience, it's they don't really need to know that. We can provide links so that if the audience wants to find out more and do their own research, they can do that. But we have to explain to them, like, if you want to really... Um, send the message across, you have to make it really snappy and really interesting and very relevant, make it very relevant for the audience. You have to be able to answer, why should I care about this? Because people, when we all now have short attention spans, and we, if we read something and it doesn't like answer to our own needs, like why would I spend time reading this? And where is this article going? So we have to explain that to our authors but once that process has been done and the author experience how after they publish the article in that shape they can see how many people are reading the article they would probably be contacted by other media for an interview so that they can share more about their research or there's different things that come out after publishing at the conversation and then they would be convinced, okay, this is the right process. <laughs> Let's talk about something else right now because I'm a huge fan of your project, Ingat 65. And I think it's relevant to our conversation here because in Indonesia, there are really complex issues with multiple layers that are very difficult to discuss, including what happened in 1965-1966. And then you had this idea to do Ingat 65, basically telling stories about it, talking to people who might not have shared stories about what happened then from different perspectives. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and what was what did you learn from doing that? Yes, I started Ingat Namlima with a couple of friends in 2000, I think it was 2015. I have to remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I remember now the idea came up in 2015. Yeah. 
And then we launched the page or the website in 2016. It's actually on medium.com. So we use medium.com as our platform. We wanted to invite young people in Indonesia to share their reflections about what happened after the 1965 killings of general. So there was a lot of atrocities that happened on, on the name of saving the country from the communist threat. And the people that were born after that period were taught that the communists did this really bad thing. And that's why it's banned now in Indonesia. And that we have to be consistently afraid of the threat of communism. And these atrocities were never shared to the public. There, there's like a lot of people actually affected of the purges, but these families or victims and survivors, they weren't allowed to share their sorrow and the injustice that happened to them. And meanwhile, the nation and the younger generation were taught to just forget about this. And then just, it's just like we, we were supposed to forget about this really horrifying thing that happened in Indonesia. And after the reform, after reformasi, after Suharto was fell out of power, there's a documentary filmmaker, Lexi Rambadeta, he did this documentary about mass graves in Indonesia where a family of survivors wanted to like collect the remains of their loved ones who were were murdered in in the purges and that was like I think it was in 2003-2004 so there were little bits and pieces of efforts within Indonesia to bring out that issue to make people remember and then in 2000 12, there's this documentary by an American documentary filmmaker, Joshua Oppenheimer. And that documentary was like, it was, it was nominated for an Oscar. And that documentary was called The Act of Killing. I saw that documentary film and it really opened my eye about what happened. And, and after that, I asked my friends basically about, do you have any family members or neighbors that was that were affected by what happened in 1965? And usually they don't really know whether they their family members were affected, but then they would ask their parents and ask them what happened. And then there would be stories. Oh yes, our this uncle was imprisoned. A close friend of mine said that her grandfather was imprisoned. Another friend of mine said her grandfather was disappeared. And so all these stories came out. And I realized that it's it can be like within your family, there, there would be a story about what happened in 65. So, this movement was a way for encouraging the younger generation to talk to their older generation, to their parents or grandparents or aunts or neighbor about 1965 and just find out how that period of time affected their family and community. And then use that information to then reflect on what they as a younger generation in Indonesia want 
the country to move forward with that. It can be a push towards a truth and reconciliation process or just an understanding that happened or maybe they want to push for more information about this in history lessons. It's just a way for the younger generation to uh, not forget about what happened and to remember. And so that was what we tried to do. We then invited young people to write essays and I think we we published more than 200 essays and the but at the moment it's quite it's it sadly the the blog the medium.com pages we haven't published essays for quite a while now and one of the reasons is just because it's it's a volunteer based movement and all of our editors are quite volunteer voluntary editors are just very hard to keep this activity going but it's still there and i hope that we can figure out a way to revive the movement again maybe we need some more resources or yeah i have been thinking about this and it's something that we should continue to be doing but it's taking a while for us to <laughs> to carry that out we should have a chat after this interview because it's an amazing project and i'm sure like me i'm sure there are many talking indonesia listeners who would love to be able to help as well yeah, that would be great. And yeah, if you're listening to this and you haven't read Ingat 65, you can just Google it, right? You can just Google Ingat 65, Ingat 65, and you'll find a medium.com site. Yes. Is that the best way to find yes. it? Yes, yeah. that is. And another thing that I want to ask you about is, I think we have to mention Twitter. <laughs> Things are happening in the world of Twitter. I don't know if when... You when really listen- love Twitter, don't you? I love Twitter. <laughs> we, we recently shared a panel at Uber Writers Festival and... <laughs> Andreas Hassan, uh, the great Andreas Hassan, yeah, uh, managed to embarrass me by telling people how much <laughs> love I have for Twitter. But I do love Twitter. And finally, I think as an academic, and I still consider myself a, as a journalist as well, Twitter is great because I can basically yes. use it to practice communicating with public with the public when i have ideas yeah. if i want to test things out the conversation in indonesia has quite a sizable followers on twitter about sixty-five thousand, mm-hmm. i think what has been the role of twitter do you think for the conversation specifically but also for academics in indonesia to engage with each other but also with the public okay i would Twitter ha- was was one of the two social media platforms that we used when we started to launch the conversation in Indonesia. We realized the first one was Facebook, so we used Facebook and Twitter. And I would realize that Indonesia love social media. They're active users of social media. They're active users of Twitter and Facebook. So we have to be there. And it's a way for us to connect with our audience and grow our audience, share what the amazing content that academics has produced and just sharing that to our audience and being able to engage with them because there's the retweet, there's the reply features, both that's on Twitter and on Facebook, there's the share and comment features. It's It has been great for us to connect with our audience and share our the ideas from our academics and see which ideas are resonate resonate with our audience. Mm. 
in Twitter, we see that the ideas or topics that resonate a lot with our audience are topic that talks about inequality, social inequality, economic inequality, injustice, because we do find that our followers on Twitter are very, they're very interested in politics and they're very interested in activism. And we have, we use different social media platforms and the followers in different social media platforms have their own personality. You can call it like that. So Twitter, definitely, they're very politically conscious and engaged. And are you concerned about the changes that are happening on Twitter right now? I'm observing (laughs) what is happening at the moment. So we're still in the wait and see situation. I hope that this turmoil within Twitter would not last long. So because it's and that maybe it can become there would be positive changes i i don't know i'm i'm just looking forward to what changes would happen there mm. what do you think what how are you looking at <laughs> the situation there yeah i think it is interesting because there are people who i would consider as my twitter friends people i have not met yes. in real life but i have often yeah spoken with them on twitter changed ideas or even argue about things so i think when you look at what's happening on twitter right now and if you're listening to this not in november 2022 when we're doing these interviews so this is november 2022 yeah. Elon musk is still doing many things on twitter i think feeling of sadness that a lot of people are feeling they're real i think yes. it's amazing what twitter managed to do because I don't want to say that it's a global public square because I think there are complexities with that phrase but I think it is a space that somehow got it right in allowing people to connect with each other and also I have to say marginalized people around the world I love listening from many Indonesians who are talking about queer rights trans rights on Twitter because that seems to be a space where they can talk about these things and get an audience get a friendly audience as well as i'm sure audience who are not very friendly uh, not very friendly but i think i'm also yeah waiting and seeing it doesn't feel like twitter is ever going to be what it was because it is now owned by someone with a very strong personality who seems mm-hmm. to want to yeah change twitter to fit well just this morning we have heard that Donald Trump is now back on Twitter. So that is mm-hmm. going to change things again. So I don't think Twitter is ever going to be what it was. But yeah, hopefully it will be something else that might still be useful. But maybe at least now I can actually stop being addicted to Twitter and finish my PhD. <laughs> 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 That's my positive take. <laughs> but finally, if we can go back to us at the conversation, what's your plan for the conversation for the future? We have very big plans for the conversation. Where we just so it in September, we we entered our we had our fifth anniversary, yep. and so we started as this startup. We're trying to figure things out. We're learning. A lot. We looked at the model of other editions of the conversation and worked 
try to replicate it in Indonesia and adjust it within the Indonesian market because not everything that works well in Australia works well with in Indonesia. So there's a lot of creativity that we have to try to unleash during our when we started. Now we we see that we've become a more established organization. Organization-wise, we have to be more professional as an organization. Back when we were still a startup, a lot of people wore many hats. And so now we have from four people, now we have 20 people, including divisions that are responsible in sustainability because the thing with an organization, any organization, be it like a for-profit or non-profit mission-based organization is that you have to make sure how you can sustain the operation and sustain the mission, the activity so that we can achieve our mission. And we are, we have teams that are responsible for sustainability and we are trying to make sure that we can continue to be sustainable in the next five years. Within the newsroom, there's we have our multimedia producer who are working on developing video content. And we want to be more success, successful in our YouTube content as well. We're quite good in producing articles and sharing it with other media and sharing it on our social media platforms and we're adjusting that into other formats into multimedia formats because we know that in indonesia our audience indonesian audience they watch videos and they also listen to podcasts so we're we want to strengthen our production in the multimedia and audio as well. There's going to be an election in 2024. So next year, 2023 is going to be a lot of commissioning around that area, looking at helping our readers to get explanation about who are the politicians who would be running policy platforms. And so make sure that it's not just about personality, but also policy as well, because basically that's why we elect our leaders, right? To help create rules and regulations and policies that actively affect our lives. We want to help readers to be able to look beyond personalities. It's not just whether this person is popular, that person is popular, but what do they actually want to bring to the table, who are they partnering with? So those kinds of things. No, oh, sounds exciting. And maybe before you go, can I ask you what what have been the most successful articles for the conversation Indonesia or maybe even articles that surprised you or articles that you think people should read more? Can you tell us about yeah, about the popular articles from the conversation Indonesia? Our readers, they're really into social justice issues, I think. One of the things that, one of the articles that was most popular last year in 2021 was an article about gig workers. So it was an article about how partnerships, sorry, how the partnership system in Gojek and Grab is still hurtful for drivers and 
that was from academics from Gajah Mada University. And a lot of people are doing research on this from Gajah Mada University, from University in Indonesia. And these articles about gig workers are almost always popular. And I think it's because we use, in Indonesia, we use Gojek a lot. Like we, like every day we would be interacting with Gojek drivers, right? And we would be ordering food from GoFood. I think people, there is this proximity with with these apps and there's a lot of Gojek drivers. And when we launch a lot of Gojek drivers also read our article also about this issue. So there's that issue is very, always very popular among our readers. The second one is science articles as well. So that's actually, it doesn't surprise me that much, but it's very different from the social justice, economic justice issue from articles about gig workers to an article about why why animals have tails. (laughs) So (laughs) that is also very popular, that article. So articles that explain about our world, our natural world, and inspire a sense of wonder, that is also very popular in the conversation. So our readers interests are very diverse. So they're politically engaged, they're environmentally conscious, but they're also curious about science trivia. So that's, yeah, that's some interesting insight about our audience. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about Conversation Indonesia? I think don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, go to theconversation.com and subscribe to our newsletter, subscribe to our social media on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, wherever you, wherever platform you use and tell us what we can do better. Actually, that's one of the things that we really want to know. We're currently doing an audience survey. So if you can go on and fill in the audience survey, we can definitely, it would help us improve the way we do things in the conversation. And that's one of the things that we always try to do is just learn from listening to our audience and see what they want. Hopefully we can provide that to them. Thank you very much. And yeah, good luck with your projects, future projects. And yeah, if you are listeners, if you're looking for Ingat 65, you can Google it. And if you're looking for the Conversation Indonesia, just make sure yeah, you, can, you can just Google Conversation Indonesia. You'll find it. Thank you very much, Rodita. Thank you, Tito. Thank you.